0: section fourteen of rational theology and christian philosophy volume one by john Tullock. this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five william chillingworth the bible the religion of protestants part two we hear little of him otherwise during these years all that we do here tends to show the liberal direction of his theological studies he expresses himself in regard to arianism as at least no damnable heresy in the view of the opinions of the antinocene fathers to which he gives detailed references. He was offered preferment in the Church of England, but felt himself unable to accept it, on the ground of inability to subscribe the 39 Articles. His position in this latter matter is interesting, particularly as he afterwards, on further consideration, abandoned it. He objected mainly to the Athanasian Creed, which, as well as the Nicene and the Apostles Creed, it is said in the Articles, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. He disapproved of the damnatory clauses of this creed. He could not apprehend, and much less affirm, that anybody should perish everlastingly, for not thinking of the doctrine of the Trinity as therein expounded. He thought that it was great presumption thus to confine God's mercy, and that such a declaration tended to create animosities and divisions in the Christian church. He had difficulties also respecting the fourth commandment, which he did not acknowledge to be binding upon Christians, as the prayer-book seemed to make it. He wrote at length to his friend Dr. Sheldon, setting forth his scruples and declaring that he would never do anything for preferment which he could not do but for preferment. Extended footnote. This letter, long as it is, deserves to be quoted in full. Whatever may be thought of its arguments, and the somewhat excited tone of feeling which it betrays, it at least sets in a striking light the noble sensitiveness of Chillingworth's character. The letter is dated from Tew, September twenty first, sixteen thirty five, and is as follows. good dr sheldon i do here send you news as unto my best friend of a great and happy victory which at length with extreme difficulty i have scarcely obtained over the only enemy that can hurt me that is myself sir so it is that though i am in debt to yourself and others of my friends above twenty pounds more than i know how to pay though i am in want of many conveniences though in great danger of falling into a chronical infirmity of my body though in another thing which you perhaps guess at what it is but i will not tell you which would make me more joyful of preferment than all these if i could come honestly by it though money comes to me from my father's purse like blood from his veins or from his heart though i am very sensible that i have been too long already an unprofitable burden to my lord and must not still continue so though my refusing preferment may perhaps which fear i assure you does much afflict me be injurious to my friends and intimate acquaintance and prejudicial to them in the way of theirs though conscience of my own good intention and desire suggests unto me many flattering hopes of great possibility of doing god in his church service if i had that preferment which i may fairly hope for though i may justly fear that by refusing those preferments which i sought for i shall gain the reputation of weakness and levity and incur their displeasure whose good opinion of me next to god's favour and my own good opinion of myself i do esteem and desire above all things though all these and many other terribiles visu formae have represented themselves to my imagination in the most hideous manner that may be Yet, I am at length firmly and unmovably resolved, if I can have no preferment without subscription, that I neither can nor will have any. For this resolution I have but one reason, against a thousand temptations to the contrary, but it is a mega, against which, if all the little reasons in the world were put in the balance, they would be lighter than vanity. In brief, this it is. As long as I keep that modest and humble assurance of God's love and favour which I now enjoy, and wherein I hope I shall be daily more and more confirmed, so long, in despite of all the world, I may and shall and will be happy. But if I once lose this, though all the world should conspire to make me happy, I shall and must be extremely miserable. Now this inestimable jewel, if I subscribe, without such a declaration as will make the subscription no subscription, I shall wittingly and willingly throw away. For though I am very well persuaded of you and my other friends, who do so with a full persuasion that you may do it lawfully, Yet the case stands so with me, and I can see no remedy but forever it will do so, that if I subscribe, I subscribe my own damnation. For though I do verily believe the Church of England, a true member of the Church, that she wants nothing necessary to salvation, and holds nothing repugnant to it, and had thought that to think so had sufficiently qualified me for a subscription, yet now I plainly see, if I will not juggle with my conscience, and play with God Almighty, I must forbear. For, to say nothing of other things, which I have so well considered as not to be in state to sign them, and yet not so well as to declare myself against them, two points there are wherein I am fully resolved, and therefore care not who knows my mind. One is, that to say the fourth commandment is a law of God appertaining to Christians is false and unlawful. The other, that the damning sentences in St. Athanasius' Creed, as we are made to subscribe it, are most false and also in a high degree presumptuous and schismatical. And therefore i can neither subscribe that these things are agreeable to the word of god seeing i believe they are certainly repugnant to it nor that the whole common prayer is lawful to be used seeing i believe these parts of it certainly unlawful nor promise that i myself will use it seeing i never intend either to read these things which i have now accepted against or to say amen to them i shall not need to entreat you not to be offended with me for this my most honest and as i verily believe most wise resolution hoping rather you will do your endeavour that i may neither be honest at so dear a rate as the loss of preferment at so much dearer a rate the loss of honesty i think myself happy that it pleased god when i was resolved to venture upon a subscription without full assurance of the unlawfulness of it to cast in my way two unexpected impediments to divert me from accomplishing my resolution for i profess unto you since i entertained it i have never enjoyed quiet day nor night till now that i have rid myself of it again and I plainly perceive that if I had swallowed this pill, howsoever gilded over with glosses and reservations, and wrapped up in conserves of good intentions and purposes, yet it would never have agreed nor stayed with me, but I would have cast it up again, and with whatsoever preferment I should have gained with it, as the wages of unrighteousness, which would have been a great injury to you and to my Lord Keeper. Whereas now, res est integra, and he will not lose the gift of any preferment by bestowing it on me, nor have any engagement to Mr. Andrews for me but however this would have succeeded in case i had then subscribed i thank god i am now so resolved that i will never do that while i am living and in health which i would not do if i were dying and this i am sure i would not do i would never do anything for preferment which i would not do but for preferment and this i am sure i should not do i will never undervalue the happiness which god's love brings to me with it as to put it to the least adventure in the world for the gaining of any worldly happiness I remember very well, quere te primum regnum Dei, etc. cetera omnia adicientur tibi, and therefore, whenever I make such a preposterous choice, I will give you leave to think I am out of my wits, or do not believe in God, or at least am so unreasonable as to do a thing in hope I shall be sorry for it afterwards, and wish it undone. It cannot be avoided, but my lord of Canterbury must come to know this my resolution, and, I think, the sooner the better. Let me entreat you to acquaint him with it, if you think it expedient, and let me hear from you as soon as possibly you can. But when you write, I pray remember that my foregoing preferment, in this state wherein I am, is grief enough to me, and do not you add to it by being angry with me for doing that which I must do or be miserable. I am your most loving and true servant, etc. Close quote. It has been strangely represented in the view of this letter and Chillingworth's subsequent statements about the meaning of subscription, preface page thirty five as if he had at length forced his conscience to the point desired by sheldon and so to speak gulped down all his difficulties under a hollow compromise with his better feelings is it not rather plain in the light of such a letter that chillingworth must have reached his new conclusions through the exercise of the same conscientious thoughtfulness with which he held his old ones a man does not change or lose his character when he changes his intellectual conclusions Chillingworth's first attitude towards subscription may appear to some minds the more consistent and higher attitude. But this is no evidence that it is so in reality, and still less is it any warrant for supposing that it must have continued to seem so to Chillingworth himself, notwithstanding his change of action, and that, therefore, the only explanation of this change is to be found in his having dealt so far dishonestly with his own convictions. For this is what the charge comes to on the contrary nothing seems more natural or intelligible than chillingworth's change of attitude in his letter to sheldon he is in all the enthusiasm of a young inquirer subscription appears to him to imply not only assent to the general doctrine of the athanasian creed as thoroughly to be received and believed in the words of the eighth article of religion but also personal acceptance of its damnatory clauses the fourth commandment again appeared to him in its strict interpretation to be a merely jewish law and therefore false in its application to christians he was unable in either case to separate the essential from the accidental he had much less capacity than his friend Hales of doing this at any time and an eager spirit of theological enthusiasm is almost always narrow in its intensity but in the course of two years further reflection chillingworth came to see these points and probably other points in a different light he recognized we may suppose as so many have since done That the damnatory clauses of the athanasian creed are not an integral part of the creed in the sense of the eighth article the very attitude taken up by the high-minded and thoughtful bishop of st david's at the time we write see guardian march twenty seventh eighteen seventy two beyond doubt also he came to see that subscription cannot mean to any rational and fully intelligent mind direct personal assent to all the particulars of a creed this is really a higher and more thoughtful if less enthusiastic attitude than that expressed in his letter but higher or not is not really the question the only question is may it not be an equally honest attitude and can we doubt that it was so in the case of chillingworth and that he was therefore as truly conscientious in ultimately consenting to subscribe as in at first refusing to do so critics are surely both ignorant and presumptuous who venture to insinuate a denial of this and from their own unintelligent standpoint to constitute themselves the arbiters of the honesty of one whose intellectual depth and subtlety they so little understand and the latchet of whose theological shoes they are not worthy to unloose end of footnote sheldon replied and several letters passed between them unhappily there have only been notes of these letters preserved but it appears from the notes that Chillingworth, besides objecting to various details in the articles, objected to the principle of articles in general, as an imposition on men's consciences, much like that authority which the Church of Rome assumes. Sheldon seems to have taken up his objections in detail, and done his best to remove them. He did not spare, at the same time, the sort of advice which is always ready on such occasions. Be not forward, nor possessed with a spirit of contradiction. We have no indication of the exact effect of his friend's arguments or advice upon chillingworth but his mind worked itself clear of its scruples before long a passage in the close of the preface to which we have already referred probably gives us the best insight into his motives for ultimately subscribing the articles and accepting preferment for the church of england he says i am persuaded that the constant doctrine of it is so pure and orthodox that whosoever believes it and lives according to it undoubtedly he shall be saved and that there is no error which may necessitate or warrant any man to disturb the peace or renounce the communion of it. This in my opinion is all intended by subscription." Close quote. This practical and sensible ground he had previously repudiated in his letter to Dr. Sheldon, but further reflection had convinced him of its soundness. With his convictions there was indeed no other ground on which he could serve the Church of England or any other church there are certain minds and chillingworth's was one of them that see difficulties in every argumentative form of doctrine their rational inquisitiveness makes them acutely sensitive to the limits of human knowledge in all directions and the dogmatic meanings which human controversy has imposed upon the simple creed of the gospel strongly repel and at times disturb them these meanings may or may not be true god alone knoweth but what such minds feel is that they are not for man to settle they are in their nature not matters of faith but matters of doubt and controversy and they are therefore properly open questions which all should be left to settle humbly for themselves in the light of holy scripture no church heretofore has been so wise in this respect as the church of england even laud appreciated religious difficulties too well not to welcome such service as chillingworth's under whatever reserves it might be rendered and Chillingworth felt himself at length able to serve the Church of England, notwithstanding his scruples. I am ready to subscribe, he virtually said, quote, to all that in my opinion is or can be intended by subscription. I belong to the Church of England. I have not only no wish to renounce her communion, but I am willing to be her minister, supposing that it is enough that I approve generally of her doctrine. This approval is what I design by subscribing the articles. In these articles, good men of former times have done what they could to express their highest Christian thought against the perversions of heretical curiosity. They would have succeeded better if they, in their turn, had been less curious, if they had refrained from defining where Scripture itself has refrained. But upon the whole, I acknowledge their doctrine, or at least I have no wish to dispute it. I accept the articles as articles of peace. Whether subscription can ever mean more than this to certain minds may be held doubtful. It must also be admitted that it does mean more to others, and that there are even minds which do not understand this point of view, but really see in controversial statements of former times, every word of which to the historical theologian bears trace of forgotten conflict, an expression of devout faith rather than a triumph of dogma. The difficulty is as to the- cooperation of these two classes in the great work of the Christian church the uninquisitive unreflecting faith which accepts without hesitation the dogmatic decisions of the fourth and fifth and even of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries can it harmonize with the critical faith which reads as in sunlight all the weaknesses and exaggerations of these decisions and cannot help acknowledging them the question is a vital one for the christian church the rights of faith are beyond challenge but criticism surely has also its rights and if they cannot live and work together the church of the future seems a somewhat dark and hopeless puzzle Chillingworth soon began to pay the wonted penalty of having thoughts of his own about religion. This reasoner, who had reasoned himself into popery and reasoned himself back to Protestantism, and who had doubts about the Athanasian creed and the Fourth Commandment, and even the necessity of creeds altogether, was he not plainly a Socinian? There seemed no other way of accounting for his changes and scruples. He must certainly be held to be a dangerous person, against whom the public should be cautioned, lest he lead them astray by his arguments. Such was the device of his opponents. Hearing that he was engaged in a defense of Protestantism, it seemed an ingenious plan to prejudice the public against him by accusing him of Socinianism, and the Jesuit, to whose book he was replying, accordingly issued a pamphlet entitled, Directions to be observed by N.N. if he means to proceed in answering the book entitled, Mercy and Truth, or Charity Maintained by Catholics. This pamphlet is little else than a series of scurrilous insinuations. Diverse common heresies especially socinianism are imputed to chillingworth and he is counselled to declare his own opinions plainly and particularly and not think to satisfy by a mere destructive way of objecting such difficulties as upon examination tend to the overthrow of all religion no less than of catholic doctrine the trick, common to religious partisans, is cleverly employed of representing him, in virtue of his questioning convictions and rational hesitations, as being opposed to all supernatural verity and sound doctrine. He has scrupled at the Athanasian creed. He is represented as destroying, quote, the belief of the most blessed trinity, the deity of our dear Lord and Savior, and of the Holy Ghost, original sin, and diverse other doctrines which all good Christians believe, yea, and all besides that cannot be proved by natural reason, Close quote he has questioned the infallibility of the pope and he is represented as overthrowing the infallibility of all scripture both of the old and new testament he is asked to answer whether his arguments lead not to prove an impossibility of all divine supernatural infallible faith and religion that either hath been or is or shall be or possibly can be It might have been thought that it remained to later times to invent the ingenious mode of theological warfare which consists in calling your opponent an infidel and because he does not accept your view of the gospel alleging that he does not believe the gospel at all but the device is really a very old one it certainly was not unknown to the seventeenth century and chillingworth had to bear the brunt of it in a very painful form but whatever pain he may have suffered he was not to be deterred from his task the jesuit had invited all to contemplate the sort of champion to which protestantism was reduced what greater advantage he asked could we wish against protestants than that they should trust their cause and possibility to be saved to such a champion but the champion was all the while amid the academic quiet of oxford and the retirement of great tew preparing his armory for the encounter he was not a man to be daunted by the mere abuse of fanaticism popish or puritan he knew his own mind too well the subject filled and animated him by its highest inspirations he saw in it a great argument at once for divine truth and human freedom and at the end of sixteen thirty seven he gave to the light the religion of protestants a safe way to salvation or an answer to a book entitled mercy and truth or charity maintained by catholics this great work claims a separate and detailed examination in the meantime we follow out the thread of chillingworth's personal history to its sad close After the publication of the Religion of Protestants, which strangely enough met the approval not only of Archbishop Laud, but the King, Chillingworth was offered, and accepted, the chancellorship of Sarum, along with the prebend of Brixworth, Brixlesworth, and in the year 1640 he represented the chapter of Salisbury as their proctor in convocation. In this manner he became a party to the subsidy voted to the King by convocation, a vote which greatly incensed the House of Commons. This appears to have been his first step towards a more close association with the Royalist Party in the impending Troubles. It is not easy for us to analyze or appreciate all the motives which influenced Chillingworth in this great crisis. All his personal predilections and feelings, like those of his friend Lord Falkland, were strongly enlisted on the side of order, and, whatever may have been his rational distrust of many of the principles put forward by the Royalists, he was still more widely separated, both by rational conviction and personal feeling, from the opposite party he failed like his friend hales to appreciate the great movement of political liberty with which puritanism was identified he failed even more remarkably to see that there was a close affinity between this movement and the religious liberty so dear to him an affinity equally unrecognized by the majority of puritans themselves but not the less real because unseen by so many on both sides on the other hand the characteristic dogmatisms of puritanism were strongly distasteful to him its intolerance revolted him yet withal we wonder at his zeal and are touched with pity at his fate we admire and yet we mourn for him as for falkland strange that the friends who had so often speculated on the course of events who had marked the excesses and risen far above the prejudices of either side should have been thus hurried into the thick of the conflict and perished before its real issues had become apparent a sermon preached by chillingworth before his majesty at oxford in sixteen forty three to four the first in the series of nine which form the most part of the third volume of the oxford edition of his works gives us the only insight into his views and feelings at this time we can see very well from it that while there is no wavering in his personal devotion to the cause which he had embraced and while his sentiments towards the king personally seem to have been those of true affection he yet recognizes the gloomy character of the crisis and how much there was on both sides to alienate and offend sober-minded christian men publicans and sinners on one side he says against scribes and pharisees on the other on the one side hypocrisy on the other profaneness no honesty nor justice on the one side and very little piety on the other on the one side horrible oaths curses and blasphemies on the other pestilent lies calumnies and perjury when i see among them the pretense of reformation if not the desire pursued by anti-christian mahometan devilish means and amongst us little or no zeal for reformation of what is indeed amiss little or no care to remove the cause of god's anger towards us by just lawful and christian means i profess plainly that i cannot without trembling consider what is likely to be the event of these distractions Close quote. there is the same tone of half despair here which made falkland lay down his life on the field of newbury weary of the times and foreseeing much misery to his country it would have been well for chillingworth if he had perished like his friend in battle what must be considered a harder fate was reserved for him there is something so singular in the story of his death the persecution to which he was subjected and the circumstances attending his burial that we have some difficulty in comprehending and crediting them all however seems to rest on undoubted evidence chillingworth had accompanied the king's forces to the siege of gloucester august sixteen forty three he was not content to be a mere spectator of the warlike movements but observing that the army wanted materials for carrying on the siege he suggested the invention of some engines after the manner of the roman testudenes cumplutes in order to storm the place what might have been the effect of these engines it is impossible to tell for the advance of the parliamentary forces under essex compelled the royalists to raise the siege in the end of the same year chillingworth out of kindness and respect to the lord hopton accompanied him in a march into sussex where he took and garrisoned arundel castle being indisposed by the terrible coldness of the season chillingworth remained with the garrison which was but ill provided with supplies and soon broke into factions it was in consequence easily recaptured by sir william waller and chillingworth out of health and out of spirits became a prisoner he continued so ill that he could not be removed with the garrison to london but was conveyed to chichester this act of kindness he is said to have owed to a person painfully associated with his last days francis chaynel a noted puritan divine of his day but whose name is now entirely forgotten he had been a fellow of merton college and according to dr calamy possessed considerable learning and abilities the fact of his having been appointed one of the assembly of divines at westminster may perhaps be taken in evidence of this whatever may have been his previous training at merton he had now developed not merely into a zealous presbyterian but as one describes him a rigid zealous presbyterian exactly orthodox very unwilling that any should be suffered to go to heaven but in the right way in the beginning of this same year he had published a tract on the rise growth and danger of socinianism in which along with others chillingworth was violently assailed footnote the full title of this tract is the rise, growth, and danger of Socinianism, together with a plain discovery of a desperate design of corrupting the Protestant religion, whereby it appears that the religion which hath been so violently contended for by the Archbishop of Canterbury and his adherents is not the true, pure Protestant religion, but an hutch of Arminianism, Socinianism, and Popery. This pamphlet was printed by order of the House of Commons in 1643. End a the principles of the religion of Protestants are repudiated in this tract as destructive and unchristian, and the allowing a chance of salvation to the Papists is denounced as a miserable weakness. It was Chillingworth's unhappy fate to encounter this violent dogmatist after the capture of Arundel Castle, and it is to Chenell's own pen that we owe the description of his conduct which would be otherwise quite incredible. His narrative bears the following title, which of itself is a revelation of the character of the man. Quote, Chillingworthy Novissima, or the sickness, heresy, death, and burial of William Chillingworth, in his own phrase, clerk of Oxford, and in the conceit of his fellow-soldiers, the Queen's arch-engineer and grand intelligencer, set forth in a letter to his eminent and learned friends, a relation of his apprehension at Arundel, a discovery of his errors in a brief catechism, and a short oration at the burial of his heretical book by Francis Chanel, late fellow of Merton College. Close quote then a secondary and more special title is annexed to the epistle or dedication to chillingworth's friends among them prideaux bishop of worcester sheldon afterwards archbishop dr potter and morley canon of christ church namely a brief and plain relation of mr chillingworth's sickness death and burial together with a just censure of his work by a discovery of his errors collected and framed into a kind of atheistical catechism fit for Racovia or cracovia and may well serve for the instruction of the irish welsh dutch french spanish army in england and especially for the black regiment at oxford Close quote such is the extraordinary title of one of the most extraordinary pamphlets that even the blind and mad rancour of religious zeal ever produced a truly ludicrous as well as melancholy instance of religious madness the tract sets out with a low gossiping narrative of chillingworth's unpopularity with the officers of the royal army as being supposed to be the queen's intelligencer and as interfering unnecessarily with his advice in their warlike counsels a gentleman is represented as informing chaynell that chillingworth was so confident of his great wit and parts that he conceived himself able to manage martial affairs in which he hath no experience by the strength of his own wit and reason you may forgive him adds our divine for though i hope to be saved by faith yet master chillingworth hopes that a man may be saved by reason and therefore you may well give him leave to fight by reason and so on we are then told what care mr chaynell took of the poor sick man's body there is no reason to doubt, apparently, his being animated by a certain kindness of heart. But while he took care of his body, he, quote, dealt freely and plainly with his soul. When I came again to him, after he had given Chillingworth a brief period to refresh himself in his sickness, I asked him whether he was fit for discourse. He told me, yes, but somewhat faintly. I certified him that I did not desire to take him at the lowest when his spirits were flatted and his reason disturbed, close quote having the great reasoner in his power he thirsted to engage him in argument ill and feeble as he was he would not take him at a disadvantage yet his orthodox ardor could not be restrained chillingworth was not the man to shrink from argument while he could and dying as he was he responded to the invitation to defend himself According to Chaynell's statement, he made various concessions regarding the war, which were satisfactory, and he was moved to spare him further disputation. But, nevertheless, their controversy continued till the Puritan finally pressed Chillingworth with some statement he had made against the course taken by Parliament, that War is not the way, of Jesus Christ. What? asked the Puritan. Quote, Are not the saints to make war against the whore and the beast? Is it not an act of faith to wax valiant and fight for the defense of that faith which was once delivered to the saints? I perceived, he adds, my gentleman somewhat puzzled, and I took my leave that he might take his rest. I gave him many visits after this first visit, adds our pamphleteer, but I seldom found him in a fit case for discourse, because he grew weaker and weaker." Close quote. It seems a hard fate, even for a disputant like Chillingworth, to have been killed by such a merciless process. Day by day his sickness grew, and the vanity of all human talk must have seemed more and more to him. But the Puritan's voice gave him no peace the puritan's zeal flamed the more hotly as the great reasoner seemed passing beyond the strife of tongues to where beyond those voices there is peace he expressed a disinclination to argue the merits or demerits of the book of common prayer i was sorry says chanel to hear such an answer from a dying man when i found him pretty hearty one day he pursues i desired him to tell me whether he conceived that a man living and dying a turk papist or socinian could be saved All the answer I could gain from him was, that he did not absolve them, and would not condemn. An indecision which was far from satisfactory. The dying man besought an interest in the charity of his disputant, for, saith he, I was ever a charitable man. My answer was somewhat tart, and therefore more charitable, considering his condition and the counsel of the apostle, Titus 1.13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And I desire not to conceal my tartness. It was to this effect sir it is confessed that you have been very excessive in your charity you have lavished so much charity upon turks socinians papists that i am afraid you have very little to spare for a truly reformed protestant quote. it is a curious and painful picture which the zealous divine draws of himself seldom have the contrasts which religion may present been more singularly exhibited let us rejoice that it is not unmixed by some genuine traits of human kindliness while he spared not the soul Chanel carefully consulted for the bodily relief of the dying theologian, whose heresies were yet so damnable to him. I sent to a Kerurgeon, one of Mr. Chillingworth's belief, an able man that pleased him well and gave him some ease, and I desired the soldiers and citizens that they would in their prayers remember the distressed state of Mr. C., a sick prisoner in the city, a man very eminent for the strength of his parts, the excellency of his gifts, and the depths of his learning. We prayed heartily that God would bless all means which were used for his recovery, that he would be pleased to bestow saving graces as well as excellent gifts, that he would give him new light and new eyes, that he might see, acknowledge, and recant his errors, that he might deny his carnal reason and submit to faith. I told him that I did use to pray for him in private, and asked him whether it was his desire that I should pray for him in public. He answered, yes, with all his heart, and he said, withal, that he hoped he should fare the better for my prayers." Close quote. The heart owns to some softening here. The humanity is not all absorbed, even beneath the hardening scales of such divinity as Chanel's. Yet the tenderness is but for a moment. It soon disappears, and the very last hours of the dying man are not sacred from coarse intrusion. Nay, the theologian seems to have reinforced his own polemical energy by a, quote, certain religious officer of Chichester Garrison, who followed my suit to Mr. Chillingworth, and entreated him to declare himself in point of religion but mr chillingworth appealed to his book again and said that he was settled and resolved and therefore did not desire to be further troubled Close quote. he expressed a wish to be interred if possible according to the custom of the church of england if not the lord's will be done and so he departed into the silent land he fell asleep and was taken to that rest which like many others before and since he had not found on earth amidst the strife of tongues and the noise of theological captains shouting for battle He died in January 1644. The day of his death is not exactly known. If Mr. Chaynell's narrative had stopped here, it would have been painfully interesting enough, but not so absolutely startling as it really is. The most extraordinary part remains. Now that the heresiarch, who would not explicitly recant his errors on his deathbed, was dead, how was he to be buried? There were three opinions, he says. The first, negative and peremptory that he ought not to be buried like a christian seeing that he had refused to make a free and full confession of the christian religion and had taken up arms against his country second that being a member of a cathedral he should be buried in the cathedral being cancellarius he should be intercancelous And third the opinion which prevailed that the men of his own persuasion out of mere humanity should be permitted to bury their dead out of our sight and to inter him in the cloisters among the old shavelings monks and priests of whom he had so good an opinion all his life accordingly chillingworth was laid by his own people in the cloisters of chichester cathedral as devout stephen was carried to his burial by devout men so it is just and agreed says chanel that malignants should carry malignants to their grave He takes care to tell us also that there were no torches or candles at the grave, for the Christians, according to Tertullian, used no such custom, although the heathens did, and the anti-Christians now do. There was a scene, however, prepared by Mr. Chaynell himself, far more expressive than any procession of torches or candles. When the malignants, says he, brought his hearse to the burial, I met them at the grave with Master Chillingworth's book in my hand. And there, with a speech which he recounts, he buried the book while they buried its author. Quote, if they please to undertake the burial of his corpse i shall undertake to bury his errors which are published in this so much admired yet unworthy book and happy would it be for the kingdom if this book and all its fellows could be so buried get thee gone thou cursed book which hast seduced so many precious souls get thee gone thou corrupt rotten book earth to earth and dust to dust get thee gone into the place of rottenness that thou mayest rot with thy author and see corruption Close quote. so spoke a christian divine in the middle of the seventeenth century a member of the Westminster Assembly, afterwards placed at the head of St. John's College, Oxford, where Laud, not many years before, had been president, of the religion of Protestants a Safe Way to Salvation. Words would fail to do justice to the painfulness of the picture. Let us rather draw down on it the merciful veil of silence. It needs not criticism, it baffles it. Yet it was meet that the veil should be lifted, if only for a moment, to show how ugly religious zeal may become how hateful it looks even across two centuries as it stood and cursed by the grave of chillingworth of chillingworth's personal character it is unnecessary to add much clarendon's sketch is graphic like all his other sketches but it leaves a good deal to be desired and certainly is not touched as we have already hinted with any special tenderness the fondness with which he lingers over the portrait of falkland and even of hale's no longer softens his pen he does justice however to chillingworth's great subtility of understanding his incomparable power of reason and admirable eloquence of language he commends moreover his rare temper in debate it was impossible to provoke him into any passion and so he adds it was very difficult to keep a man's self from being a little discomposed by his rare sharpness and quickness of argument His almost unrivalled power of touching the weakness of other minds who ventured to dispute with him, combined with such a faculty of composure on his own side, may have made Chillingworth somewhat unpopular and even unamiable beyond his own circle. He certainly had the capacity of exciting intense asperity in his opponents. It is impossible, withal, to doubt that he was a man of generous impulses and true warm-heartedness, an earnest, fearless, able man, with the higher tenderness which is seldom dissociated from true courage incapable of a mean thought and ready to make any sacrifices for what he deemed the truth when he heard of falkland's death at newbury he wept bitterly for the loss of his dear friend as to what clarendon says of his inconstancy and propensity to change this is merely the natural view which a statesman and a man of the world takes of a restlessly inquisitive intellect whose thoughts he cannot measure there was no levity in any of chillingworth's changes they were only varying attitudes of spiritual aspiration The same deep sincerity and sleepless search after truth animate and guide him throughout. Of his personal appearance we have indications both from Clarendon and Aubrey, but there is no portrait of him as far as we know. He was, the former says, of a stature little superior to Mr. Hales. It was an age in which there were many great and wonderful men of that size. He was a little man, says Aubrey, with blackish hair of a Saturnine countenance. End of chapter 5, part 2